Uh, you will want God's word open to 2 Samuel. We're getting near the end, 2 Samuel chapter 22. Uh, the Pew Bible, the Black Pew Bible there, it's on page 274. Uh, we're getting near to the end, as I said, 2 Samuel, which means we're getting to the end of King David's life. Uh, the greatest king over God's people. Uh, we will actually read of his final words, his, his final public words uh, here in a moment into chapter 23. But just an interesting you know, textual note here. Uh, I, I don't know how many of you have read good biographies down through the years, but if you were to ever uh, reach the end of a good biography and it said nothing of their, uh, their passing, <laughs> Of, of their last words, of the details of their death, you would say, uh, that was kind of lame. Uh, what, you know, what's the point? I, I, we, this is, there's something is missing. Well, interestingly enough, uh, it's no mention in First and Second Samuel. Of course, it's, it's actually all one, the book of Samuel. Uh, but you get to the end, and there is no mention of the details surrounding David's uh, death. Uh, I, why is that? Uh, well, uh, just in case you're wondering, uh, David does die. Uh, and he dies at age 70. And we find uh, just one little detail about that uh, over in 1 Kings uh, chapter 2. He's, it's only natural uh, causes and he's 70 years old. Uh, but the point is, uh, in highlighting that, is that it's not a biography of David. Uh, ultimately, Samuel is a book that is about, and more importantly, the God that David loves. The God that David serves, the God that David relies upon. David knew uh, of his calling to become the king over Israel, the anointed one, uh, to take up this responsibility and this task from a very early age. If you'll recall, it was, the, it was uh, that, that great prophet uh, and priest Samuel who was anointing him to that task. Much to the surprise of everyone. Uh, of course, as his life progressed, more and more came into focus. It was a very long road for him to ascend and become the king over Israel and Judah. And um, when I say a long road, it was a long road of, of pain and toil and disappointment and suffering and betrayal. We know that. We've been, we've been tracing over that in our study, and you can read of it yourself. But along the way, somewhere around 2 Samuel chapter 7 and 8, we discover that God has a massive plan. Not just a redemptive plan at that particular moment, but for the people of Israel and for the people of his covenant promise. God makes a promise with David and his lineage, his descendants, a covenant promise that he will, uh, there will be a king descending from him and a kingdom that lasts forever and ever. Why? Because God wanted to show both his mercy and his might. He wanted to display both his love and both his power. Because God wanted ultimately not just to preserve a people, but to have a nation that would be a blessing to the nations. And that the people of God, Israel, would be a blessing, gathering worshipers from all nations, part of God's plan. He promised God, that is the Lord Yahweh, his covenant name, promised to preserve David in the face of his enemies. And boy, there are some points that you think it is fourth quarter and, uh, and four, you know, just four seconds to spare. David has enemies, whether it's, uh, you know, early on, it's obviously the Philistines. Uh, and then and, and later it becomes Saul, his own father-in-law. And then Saul's son, Ishbosheth. And then it's the Philistines again. And then it's his own son, as we've been looking at recently, Absalom, who wants to threaten. And they, they threaten his life. He's fighting. He's hiding. He's running. David is in trouble again and again and again. Where does he go for help? 
Where does he go for peace of mind? Where do you go for help and peace of mind? Don't answer that for yourself. Uh, Ask yourself this question. What would people in my life who know me well say I go? Where is my, if I were to ask people who know and love me well, where do I go to find peace uh, and, and, and solace and comfort when I am troubled? They may tell you, and it might even be a bit more accurate. David consistently gives us a window into his heart, his mind, his priorities. David gives us a window uh, into his own emotional frame of mind. And that's why I love the Psalms again and again. My kids typically know that if I'm going to open up the Bible and read something, it'll be from the Psalter. Uh, This is God's uh, precious book. It's an anatomy of the soul. David is fearful. We read in the Psalms, David is fearful. David is grateful. We read that he is confused. He feels guilt and shame. He experiences uh, uh, weariness. What does David sound like? A human. (laughs) Us. Uh, David sounds like a normal human being. But David does not have a pattern of being self-centered. He's God-centered. Psalm 16, preserve me, he cries out, O God. For I take refuge in you. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you, David says. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent one in whom I delight. David is saying, I'm not only just enthralled and, and, and pleased and delighted in God. I love God's people. David is not self-centered. It's about the people of God. David is not only a king over them. He's also a prophet. He's also a poet. David is. Why, why, why do we, just an aside question, why, why do we come together uh, and sing? When, when we come together and worship, why do we sing? I mean, some of you sing because it's natural. You sing in the shower. You sing in the car. Uh, some of you only sing on Sunday when you come here and very quietly. Maybe, maybe you sing loud and it's off pitch. I don't know. I don't even care. But why down through the ages, now for centuries and millennia, the people of God, down from the, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, sing in the context of worship, whether they like it or not. Because of David. <laughs> Largely, not, not, not exclusively, but primarily because of King David. He institutes uh, songs and words and lyrics and poetry and imagery and metaphor. He breaks out instruments and dances and worships God. Because God is worthy. We sing because of God. Not because of David, but because of David's God. But David sets the stage for his time and again in writing these psalms. Not all the psalms, by the way, are written by David. You probably already knew that. In fact, one of the psalms that we discover in Scripture is not even in the Psalter. It's because of Hannah. At the opening of Samuel, in 1 Samuel, I remember we actually went over it uh, three years ago. It was the, it was the morning that we baptized uh, the Powell's youngest, Vivian Grace. So that's been you know, a lot of territory we've covered in 1 and 2 Samuel. Three years ago, on that Sunday, we were rehearsing uh, Hannah's, the opening psalm to 1 and 2 Samuel. So it's almost as if, not almost as if, it's clearly as if, the writer, the narrator, wants us to see and appreciate bookends to this great work. The bookends are two psalms. One is Hannah's psalm, 
where she's talking about how delighted she is. She's no longer barren. She is, you know, she has a son and he will be a, a, a great prophet, Samuel, over the people of God. And, and that God would, will exalt the humble and humble the exalted, the proud. And then the bookend is Psalm 18. The, the writer composes and narr- the, the narrator uh, you know, brings this in at the end of David's life because actually the words that we're about to read are taken straight from Psalm 18, almost identical. And it's, the, it's part of this close and end. It will be a summary that he brings. It was written by David earlier, but he brings it in at this particular point to almost offer it as a summation of David's life song. We'll cross over a little bit into chapter 23. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to read a portion of this. Beginning in verse 1. Hear this. This is the word of God. 2 Samuel 22. And David. David spoke to the Lord. Words of this song. On the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God and my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies for the waves of death encompass me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of shield entangled me. The snares of death confronted me in my distress. I called upon the Lord for my God. I called From his temple, he heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked and the foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherubim and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him, his canopy, thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. And the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord and the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of the waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me for I've kept the ways of the Lord and I've not wickedly departed from God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statues I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept my lips from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. With mercy you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man you show yourself blameless. With the purified you dealt purely. With the crooked you make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are are on the haughty to bring them down. You are my lamp, O Lord. You, my God, lighten my darkness. For by you I can trust against the troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his ways 
are perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. For who is a God like the Lord and who is a rock except our God? This God is my refuge and he has made my way blameless. Now let's look a little further down into chapter 23. I'll read these opening seven verses. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of a man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The the rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause the pros- cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But but worthless men are all like the thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to him. You may be seated. Let's ask for God's help. Sound like a good idea? Amen? Father, help us. You told us. No, actually, you promised us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So would you please bless this portion of your word to our hearing, to our believing, to our responding and our application. Send your spirit that we might be both attentive uh, and, and yet humble. We ask this on account of Jesus. Amen. There seems to be themes that come into focus uh, in this psalm. A few things. As I mentioned, many scholars believe that this was actually written around the time of 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7. David has, has ascended the throne. He's breathing a sigh of relief. He's, uh, you know, he, Saul is dead, sadly enough. Uh, Jonathan is too. But he now is king. And he has... Uh, there's peace. He has had victory. He has been a warrior that God has used to bring uh, peace to his people. The sentiment, of course, here, when he finally uh, applied, you know, is uh, on the throne, is originally applied to David then with Saul, but it could be reapplied. And in fact, that's what the narrator intends to do when it comes to how God delivered him from other enemies, including Absalom, which we just studied. So it's again in view. The three things that I was... Uh, that kind of came out to me in study this week, and I listed them there in the order of service, are a rock, a savior, and a king. There's a rock mentioned here, a rock that David knows very well. There is a savior that David needs deeply. Uh, And then third, there's a king that David does not yet know, at least not fully. So first, a rock that David clearly knows well. David calls out with hope, with praise, because of this rock. And his name is the God Yahweh. Uh, a rock, of course, we know is, is often uh, understood to be uh, a metaphor for strength or stability or safety. It's not just metaphorically, physically, literally, David had to hide at different times 
uh, in, in seeking uh, to run and hide from uh, his enemies like Saul and his men, he, David and his mighty men would find refuge in a rock. There would be water there. It would be like going to places... Uh, even to this day, you can go there in En Gedi, which is near the Dead Sea. And David was there, uh, hidden in a cave. And, of course, God put Saul right in front of him. But, but David didn't take his life. It wasn't time. And that was the Lord's anointed. David was a man of faith. He didn't say, oh, yes, my enemy is right in my hand, so now I'll take him out. It wasn't, it wasn't the time. And David was obedient even in those times of refuge in that rock. Time and again. Metaphorically here, he speaks of God in the opening, verse 2 and verse 3. And then altogether in the passage, there's six different times he refers to God as a rock. God the rock, not David the rock. As one Old Testament scholar, Hertzberg states, David's history could have been narrated as that of a great and powerful king. This chapter, however, he writes, is concerned that it should be understood as the action of a great and powerful God. Not just a great and powerful king, ultimately. And then David writes this. I know it's not set to music, but it is a song. It's a psalm that David composes. A song of, a psalm of thanksgiving and praise. David's not just... Uh, exploding. He's overflowing with praise. I encourage you to go back and meditate on the whole of it. It's almost as if, uh, you know, he's, he, he's writing a, a love song to the Lord as you read uh, so often in the Psalms. I remember being in high school. I'm glad that my teenagers are downstairs helping with children's ministry this morning. I remember my, one of my first crushes in high school Young girl, uh, I actually don't even remember her name right now, but I just remember thinking, I barely knew her, but, uh, but she was willing, when I wrote her that note, to go steady with me, and I thought, I should write her a love letter, and, and here's my idea in writing a love letter. I, I barely know much about her. I, 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 you know, I don't just want to write down facts. I want to say something eloquent, and, uh, and, and uh, I, I turned on my boombox. This is something in the 90s, kids. You don't, you don't know about this. It had, you know you know, double D batteries, and it was set up on my shelf, and I'm listening to whatever the equivalent of Delilah was back in the day, and, uh, and I'm getting inspiration from love songs, and oh, that's a good one. It, it, it's got imagery, and it rhymes, and I'll write this to, I'm guessing her name was Jennifer, because there were a lot of girls in my high school named Jennifer and Stephanie, and I, I write this girl and tell her how wonderful she is with all of this poetic language. It's kind of embarrassing, Like I said, I had very little to say. I didn't know this girl. David doesn't have puppy love for God or a woman. David's writing a song of adoration about a God he knows very well. David memorized God's law. David knew God's character. He cried out to God in prayer. He has seen God provide. Yes, sometimes, like I said earlier, within seconds, God shows up and is merciful and powerful in David's life. God has been faithful. The God he refers to time and again in our passage is Yahweh, the covenant name of the Lord, not just Elohim, which is the Hebrew name for God, but Yahweh. Yahweh is the the Lord, the covenant name of a God who made his relationship with a particular people and David as his king. What does that God do? Well, look at verse seven. He not only exists, 
But this God, verse 7, hears him. And then as he picks up verse 8 through 16 in this, this beautiful song, what do we see except he knows of the presence and power of God, even on display in, in, in works of, of creation and nature. And, you know, the cool thing is, is that David, when he writes the Psalms inspired of God, including this one, that he intends, God intends for us to steal, to use those words as inspiration for us to go and worship God. We're, we're, we're told to take this up and to make this, these words to reflect the attitude of our heart and posture. And by the way, it's not just facts. It's not just facts about, oh, God did this and God did that and God did this and that would be true and it would be accurate. But it's more than that. Because he sets it, not just for facts, he sets it to story and poetry. Dale Ralph Davis, you know, my favorite commentator, he writes this of, of this passage. The poetry provides the truth behind the facts. All these came from Yahweh. Yahweh, the sky splitting, world shaking, enemy bashing God. Such a God energizes praise within us. Should. It's worth meditating on these words. In fact, one of, the first thong, one of the very first songs I can remember singing as a young boy in church was straight from here, Psalm 18 in 2 Samuel 22. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And then it says, so shall I be saved from my enemies. The Lord liveth, and blessed be the rock of my salvation. The Lord liveth, and blessed be the rock of my salvation. David's words and David's ways reveal something about his heart, about his outlook, about what is his rock of refuge and strength and protection. What is it for you? What is it for me on any given day? What is it for you? What does it say about you? The God of my salvation. Well, that's the next point. Another theme here is that David knows a savior in singing these things. You see that he knows a savior, a rock, but also a savior that he needs deeply. Multiple times, David refers here to his need for a deliverer, past, present, future. David's enemies are often God's enemies. That's not always true of us, by the way. <laughs> okay, uh, I don't know. You, you know, there's a lot of people in America, even Christians and churches, that think every one of their enemies is God's enemies, and that's just not true. Trust me. In fact, I can think about in my own life and my own story that God sent friends and advocates. And, and, and teachers into my life, I perceived them as enemies. But they loved me enough to speak the truth to me. And I thought they were enemies for challenging me and, and, and calling me or holding me accountable. Thanks be to God for those people. They were instruments in the hand of God to help me, to humble me, to help me. 
to humble you and to help you. And it has to be in that order because some people only want help if they don't have to be humbled. But it doesn't work that way in God's economy. And David had to be humbled, sometimes humbled by his own sin and consequences of his sin. And we know about that, don't we? Historically, for us personally, you know, existentially. But suffice to say, we do have enemies. Some of those are God's enemies, some of them are not. Some of those are enemies from within, and some of those are enemies from without. But we definitely need a Savior. Our common enemies, if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Christ, your common enemies are the flesh, the world, and the devil, the father of lies. Praise be to God. We have a savior. In Christ, he has dealt with all of those enemies, including the final enemy, which is death. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but I'm my own worst enemy. Yeah? And I, oh, by the way, uh, don't be mistaken. It's not because I'm self-critical. It's because I'm self-confident that I become my own enemy. I face troubles, obviously, Lesser than David at times. But nonetheless, they're real. They're real troubles. Troubles that tempt us. Tempt us to trust our own words, our own wit, our own wealth. What's another W? Wine, women, weather. We're tempted to trust all kinds of things that we can create or we can latch hold of physically relationally, mentally, that have nothing to do, have everything to do with the creation, but not the creator. And David is saying, you want a rock and a savior, you better stop, you better stop clinging to those things, enjoy them maybe for what they're worth, but you better cling to the real thing, to the real God. Self-confidence gets David in trouble. Uh, we're we're going to find out even at the close. That's my story too. Self-confidence has gotten us in trouble. It's like the kid, right? Water park, I know it's not summertime. Some of you have been down to Florida though recently. You go to a water park, right? What happens? Little kids like, I want to play. This is exciting. Let's go to the wave pool. I was a lifeguard for five years. I've seen some of these kids. You go to the wave pool, and, and what's exciting about the wave pool is, is when the, the buzzer goes off, right? And everyone screams, and the waves start kicking. At that time, you're okay, non-swimmer little kid, because you're standing, and the water's right here. But somewhere along the way, the water is shaking. The, the waves are coming. The current is there. You're being pulled out. And you don't feel the bottom anymore. And some of you have troubles in your life. And I know about them. And it feels like, where is the shallow end? Where is something firm for me to stand upon? Because even if the waves come, I can't even swim in this. Perhaps you also heard the noise Uh, In this passage. I mean. If you followed along. And you know. Back in chapter 11 and 12. David had some problems. Of his own making. So why on earth does David here. 
Okay, let's, let's just go read it. Verse 21. The Lord has dealt with me according... I know I've, I've just commended to you not having self-confidence. But what does David say here in verse 21? The Lord's dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanliness of my hands, he's rewarded me. What? What, what, what is this? What are you talking about? Let's look at verse 24. I was, David says, I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt and the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. Uh, David, uh, there was something that happened. Uh, there's several things that have happened that would lead you not to say that. That, that can't be accurate. What, what on earth is he talking about? I think that Uriah, if he were alive, would have something to say. Otherwise, he's dead because you slept with his wife. David, there's other times that you have not been blameless. David does have righteous deeds. The pattern of David's life is one of obedience. God does reward that in this life and the next. Plain and simple. But ultimately, David is not justifying himself on the basis of his deeds. That's why he is longing for a savior and Messiah. If you don't think so, go read Psalm 51. He knows he cannot trust in himself. But he does know that God has rewarded him along the way because of his faithfulness and obedience. God does work that way. He was saved by faith in the promise. He was looking forward. But he did live a, not a spotless life, but a pattern of blamelessness. Just like Paul says, what should we desire of our leaders? Are you, are you a leader? What, what is a Christian leader? What, is, what should mark and define a Christian leader? Someone who is above reproach, who is not open to blame. Are there, are there things in David's life that leave him? No, the pattern of his life. I mean, he is righteous not before God, Ultimately, except that God forgave, forgave him just like he did us by faith, looking forward to the promise of a Messiah. We're looking back to the promise of a Messiah who gives us his righteousness, a righteousness that's not our own. But that's vertically speaking. Horizontally, David was a better, was a better man. He was righteous. He did conduct himself in relation to the world, not with perfect holiness, but he did live distinctly. We can never save, nor could David of himself. We cannot save ourselves. David could not. It was all God's doing. That's why let's look at part of the, uh, the passage I didn't read. Verse 32, for who in our passage in the song here that David writes, who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except for our God? This God is my strong refuge. He has made my way blameless. God made his way blameless. David bears fruit of faith because of God working in him. Verse 34, God made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. David is not, King David is inspired of God, is not singing, is not composing and writing this poetry to inform us. He is trying to dramatize the things of God's salvation. That might, and for the purpose of this, that it might lead us deeper into worship and awe. David's praise, his words, these sentences, this song, it's meant to lead us into deeper devotion and to, to, to deeper surrender. The words and the sentences of this song and the metaphors 
and the imagery in view, while they can help us understand David's praise, they cannot make us feel it sincerely. To to experience it internally in our hearts, it, it must be in faith and surrender. The Lord, let's look down at another portion that I did not read. Verse 47, the Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. The Lord who gave me vengeance and brought down people under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this, verse 50, I praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing Praises to your name, great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. David's clearly speaking about a rock of salvation that is well beyond himself. Okay, so, so briefly, David's already been singing, talking, reflecting about a, a rock that he knows well, a savior that he needs deeply. But then last... He's also talking about a king, not himself, but a king that he does not yet know, at least not fully. The close of this song and then bridging into uh, chapter 23, the, the other words and which form part of that song, we get the impression that he's talking about a ruler and a king who is future. And part of that's because we even know in the opening, well, the closing verses, he talks about that, king, that kingdom forever. But then in the opening of Chapter 23, he talks about it being an oracle. In other words, this was a divine revelation, these last words. These are not the the very last words of David on his deathbed, but publicly speaking, David here has a sentiment. Let's uh, let's read what part of that oracle is. And we know, again, we know that there is something that is everlasting about it because look at uh, verse two. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. And then it's an everlasting king because verse five says, for does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. This is a... This is a future king and kingdom. This is something out there. David is referring to something. He's looking for a Messiah for God's people that's actually going to come from his own lineage as God had promised in covenant 2 Samuel 7. Dale Ralph Davis again. The coming kingdom is not a political proposal, but a divine certainty, right? It's not a vision. It's not a campaign speech. It's, it's not a prayer that is wishful. It is based on a promise. So Dale Ralph Davis says, God's people in this world s- seldom have circumstantial certainty, but we have kingdom certainty. I don't think I could go on without it. I don't either. Davis goes on to say the kingdom is attractive because the king is attractive because we have seen so little of this kind of ruler. Whether it's from democracy to dictatorship, when have we found a ruler so controlled by godly fear and personal righteousness that his tenure actually revives and renews his people? It's, 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 it's so seldom. It is true. 
And yet we still put our our hope and our stock and our fear tied to all of that. The coming of the kingdom. I mean, we know what it's like. We're only used to flawed leaders, right? Who, Who have some element of corruption, deceit, oppression, power grabbing. They use people instead of reviving them so often. The coming of this kingdom that is in view here, which of course we know David is just a foreshadowing looking forward. It becomes a kingdom that is later inaugurated by Jesus and it will be consummated when he returns and he will bring both peace and justice. He will bring both salvation and um, condemnation. Who rules the world? Who, who, I mean, we already know the song says everybody wants to rule the world. And we know that's true since the garden. But who rules the world? I don't, you know, is it, is it, are we in the matrix? I mean, is, uh, is it China? Is it, is it Russia? Is it some uh, political superpower? Who rules the world? Some tyrannical leader whose finger is only this far away from nuclear power? No, King Jesus rules the world. King Jesus rules the world. These songs, these promises, these prophecies, they're both about restoration and destruction. They're both coming. It's fitting because the imagery is that of a rock. And rocks can be a refuge and a strength and a a cave for hiding or an anchor for your life. But they can also be dangerous if you're at sea, if it's the reef. If you're coming close to shore, those rocks could ruin you. That's why we have these things called lighthouses all down the coast. The rock can be a refuge for safety or it can be a threat. The coming of Christ, our rock, and his kingdom involves both salvation and condemnation. That's what he says in verse 23. Excuse me, chapter 23, verse 6 and 7. Worthless men are all like thorns. Verse 7. The man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft and the spear, and they're utterly consumed with fire. Folks, we need to adore this God. You say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. Same God. We must adore him, submit to him, and follow him. Christ's new order, he will come to judge those who will not submit to him as king and lord. It's very clear at the end of the age. I, I like the way the NIV puts it. These are Jesus' own, his very words. Jesus said, this not me. Matthew chapter 13, the son of man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all those who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let him hear, Jesus said. Spiritual ears. There's wheat. In that context, Jesus says there's wheat and there's tares. At a distance, largely indistinguishable in the field. But when he comes, he will separate those. The king knows God our Father has appointed a king and a judge. There's hope for the wheat. He brings that into the barn. He says that earlier in Matthew 13. 
As a family, we recently, I'm almost done. As a family, we were watching a Netflix series on, the, the, the show is, uh, This is a Robbery. Thank you, Aaliyah. Uh, it's a story. We, our, our kids had gone on a field trip to uh, the Isabella uh, Gardner Museum. Am I pronouncing that right? It's, it's, it's in the city. It's in Dorchester. The Netflix series highlights how at this museum in Dorchester, Back in 1990, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, how millions, someone broke in in 1990 and stole. It is, it is to this day, the greatest art heist in, 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 in history. Millions and millions, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, worth of artwork was, was taken, cut right out of the frame. Those frames still exist there. The one that is most prominent, the one that is most substantial. Now, they, they, there's all kinds of theories. Uh, if you find one of these, uh, you know, in your grandma's attic or something, uh, they thought it was with the, you know, the mob or the mafia in Boston, and, and they still don't know where it is, and it's a $10 million reward if you come across some of these treasures of art. The greatest one out of all of them was a Rembrandt. Rembrandt's only seascape, it's an oil painting on a canvas, and it's capturing Mark chapter 4. That's right, the New Testament gospel. It's Christ. The name of it is the storm on the Sea of Galilee. In it, it's a depiction of, you know, when, when Christ is, is, is weary in his humanity, he's at sea, he's asleep, storm comes, the ship is raging, and, and the beauty of this artwork on an oil canvas is it rises up on a wave. Everyone has looks of terror. Jesus is asleep. And then there's this one peculiar guy just staring back at you, the person who is uh, the observer of the artwork. It's Rembrandt. He, he, somewhere in the 12 disciples, he, he paints himself in that picture. Looking at you. Mark 4, let me read the word of God. Jesus awoke. He rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased. There was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, who, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Who is this? Well, I'll tell you who he is. He's the cornerstone. He's the rock of our salvation. The risen and returning, the risen and returning king. Trust him, my friends. Trust him with your trials. Trust him with your, your temptations. Trust him with the things that trouble you from all sides. Take refuge and rest in him. He is worthy. Repent of your sin, your self-confidence and reliance. Cast yourself, throw yourself on the rock. Father, please hear our prayer. Forgive us. You told us so clearly from the prophet Isaiah's mouth, your word, 
Seek the Lord while he may be found. And I pray for anyone here and everyone here that we would seek the Lord who is a rock, who is a refuge. All of these things that David said, and David could have said so much more, would be true of you. Forgive us for the ways that we failed to trust you. Forgive us for trying to latch hold of things that we thought were rock and it's just sand. Forgive us, Lord, for, for, for trying to be our own savior, finding some boy or girl or car or career that would be our, our salvation, our savior. Have mercy on us. Forgive us for not taking you at your word for doubting your goodness and your kindness. Forgive us for being restless and anxious and even angry about tomorrow because of our unbelief. Maybe even, I know for me, just feeling contempt and discontented with your secret providence. Lord, thank you for your covenant love and kindness. Teach us your promises. Teach us to pray stand, standing boldly on those promises. You know, Lord, there's people in our midst, they're struggling. They're struggling with their health and with work, with contentment, with weariness in their calling. Some are battling with feuds in their own family. And, and this is Thanksgiving week and the holidays are coming up. So when there's not peace or when there's just the, the absence of, of people, there's grief. Lord, I pray that we would draw near to you. Even with all the loads of uncertainty that does mark a world that is in upheaval, I ask that you would use this to draw people to yourself. Don't just make it better, Lord, use it. Use all of it to glorify yourself and to humble us. Place us, Lord, in a world. May, may we be messengers this very week of hope and peace and good news in Jesus. We pray in his name. Even now together as he taught his disciples to pray. Saying, Our Father, who art in